Hi, everyone. I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Brendan Doherty, who is a neurophysiologist and physical therapist in the divisions of physical therapy and rehabilitation science at University of Minnesota. Recently, Dr. Doherty joined us for a webinar to talk about respiratory neuroplasticity and how sex hormones affect the regulation of breathing. Let's get right into it. First question today comes from Noah, who's asked, does phrenic LTF uh, occur with other respiratory stimuli like hypercapnia, or is it specific to hypoxia? Yes, thank you for that question. Levels of carbon dioxide are, are very important to the magnitude of phrenic long-term facilitation, but intermittent hypercapnia specifically does not induce the same downstream mechanisms that lead to phrenic long-term facilitation. In fact, previous studies have shown that uh, repetitive hypercapnia actually causes a, a depression in, in the long-term depression of phrenic motor output. But the, inter, the interaction between hypercapnia and hypoxia is an area of, of ongoing study. I think that likely there's going to be uh, a range of, of hypercapnic values or hypercapnic levels that will be necessary to maximize this particular form of, of neuroplasticity. But if you're just looking at it sort of in, in, a, in a box here, intermittent hypercapnia does not induce the same plasticity as intermittent hypoxia. It really is a hypoxia-specific uh, phenomenon. Excellent. Uh, great answer. Next question comes from uh, Marissa. Great question here. Do you think the use of birth control in humans could change the capacity to express LTF since birth control changes the estrogen-progesterone relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and again, this is when we're thinking long term about potential ways that these findings could apply to humans. That's definitely something that we have in our minds. I think it's it's very premature at this point based on what we know about how estrogen is involved in this particular type of plasticity to make that jump. However, if we uh, continue to demonstrate that, that estrogen levels are important, an important prerequisite to inducing this type of, of, of neuroplasticity, then any drug really that's going to cause changes in the balance of, of sex hormones potentially could, could influence our ability to induce plasticity. So it's definitely on our minds as we continue these studies moving forward. And at some point, as we begin to partner with scientists working in, in, with humans, that would be a question that would be of great interest for us. Excellent. Yeah, we've received a number of questions about progesterone. Adriana has asked, could progesterone or other neurosteroids participate in neuroplasticity as well? So do you have any evidence that progesterone uh, in particular is not the key hormone influencing plasticity? Yeah, actually, I do. Give me a second. I have a slide, actually, that I can throw up. I, I didn't include it in the talk just for, for timing's sake, but... So there, there has been indications in the past that, that progesterone specifically or even the, the ratio of progesterone to estrogen in, in females is important for the development of neuroplasticity. And so what we did is we were looking for, for a naturally occurring period of time where we had high levels of progesterone and low levels of circulating estradiol. And so 
that period is, is naturally occurring in rats in early postpartum. And so we studied a group of postpartum female rats that have this, this naturally high progesterone and low estrogen. And what we, what we found was that they did not express phrenic long-term facilitation after intermittent hypoxia. So we, we, this was the initial evidence that we had that likely it's not progesterone specifically that is involved in the mechanisms of neuroplasticity. It's likely estrogen. But one of the things you'll notice on this particular trace is that they had incredibly large hypoxic responses. And so it, it appears that progesterone is, is, uh, more important for the sensitivity to hypoxia. And that's been suggested in human studies as well. But it doesn't appear that progesterone is directly related to mechanisms of neuroplasticity. However, we can't rule it out. And it's something that we're always, we always sort of have in the back of our minds. And should we have evidence as we move forward that progesterone plays a more direct role, it's a, it's a direction that we will, we will definitely go. All right. Fantastic. Great answer. All right, next question comes from Alexandra, who's asked, do you know if your data correlates with the COVID-19 pathogenesis? She says some clinical studies are testing anti-androgen drugs like flutamide as therapy to severe COVID, but the patient number is still very small. Yeah, I, to be honest, I have, I, have, I, I have no knowledge of specifically how the pathways that I've just described to you interact with the known mechanisms of the COVID-19 outbreak. And we've done some initial studies looking at some thoughts we have related to COVID-19 here at the University of Minnesota related to how it could impact the neural pathways of breathing. But, but we haven't gotten to a point where we've seen any interaction specifically with the, the sex hormone mechanisms that I've, that I've just described. Because sex hormones play sort of a ubiquitous role in, in so many of the physiological systems in the body, I, I don't necessarily have a, a great deal of surprise that it is uh, involved in the COVID-19 response. But unfortunately, I don't have any specific information about how the two are linked. All right, excellent. Question here from Colleen, who says, uh, very nice talk. Thank you. Have you looked at exercise effects to hormone levels and neuroplasticity? We have not. Again, we we are are pretty focused right now on on trying to get the our baseline knowledge of of how estrogen signaling specifically interacts with this form of neuroplasticity. I, but I would love to partner with somebody to to look at the role that exercise would play in again in changing hormone levels and and how that in turn could impact our ability to induce neuroplasticity. You know, I didn't include. Or exercise protocols on my on my triangle diagram of of sort of the direction our lab is going, but I can very easily make that a square if somebody uh, is interested in uh, in those in that particular group of studies. Yeah, definitely an interesting avenue of research for the future. Another good question from Jay Nair, who says, in humans, it's hard to elicit ventilatory LTF in a poikilocapnic condition. How is that different mm -hmm. from VLTF in anesthetized rats? And did you use high CO2 in the inspired air to elicit the VLTF? Yeah, thanks, Jay. You're absolutely right. In, in humans, it's much more difficult to, to elicit ventilatory long-term facilitation, normally it requires you to have a basal level of carbon dioxide stimulation on board as well. In our rat model, we did not um, include any additional carbon dioxide leaked into the system. And so there is a slight difference in our ability to induce ventilatory long-term facilitation in rats versus humans. 
don't have a good explanation right now for why that is. However, in those studies, we did not specifically bleed in carbon dioxide. Now, having said that, the amplitude of that ventilatory long-term facilitation was relatively small, about a 20% increase above baseline. Now, our phrenic long-term facilitation studies are, are usually roughly double that amount. So they're usually in the 40 to 60% increase relative to baseline range. It's definitely possible in our rats we could get more consistent results if we used, you know, you know, one to three percent carbon dioxide in the system as well. We have not tried that yet in our lab, but I know other labs are 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 tinkering with the the protocols for ventilatory long-term facilitation to try to optimize them. And we will happily adapt our protocols when those uh, when those when the optimized protocols become available. All right. Excellent. Great answer. Another question from, from Timothy here, who says it's, it's similar to the first question, but how does intermittent hypoxia, hypercapnia induce LTF, either PLTF or VLTF? And is this a similar message as IH alone? So I'm not I'm not exactly sure that I that I understand the question completely, but I can I can go back and refer to what we what we currently know as the mechanisms of of phrenic long term facilitation at the cellular level. And again, it's that this this reduction in the levels of oxygen cause they stimulate the the RAFE neurons in the brainstem, which which are are the primary serotonin producing cells. And those cells have descending projections down into the spinal cord. And so as you reduce the level of oxygen, you, you increase serotonin release into the spinal cord. And it's this episodic nature of that, of that release that you get with acute intermittent hypoxia that causes this cascade of events to happen, leading to phrenic long-term facilitation. Now, if you just do a sustained uh, hypoxic stimulus, so for example, instead of doing five minutes on, five minutes off, repeating it three times, if you take that uh, time frame, that full time frame, and you just give one long hypoxic stimulation, the same LTF is not expressed. It, it is definitely reliant on the pattern of stimulation. So it is this intermittent hypoxic stimulus that initiates this uh, type of plasticity. Now, this isn't really unheard of. I mean, there's lots of evidence in the in the learning literature, for example, to say that if you're if you're learning, if you're forming new memory connections, for example, intermittent stimulation is going to help improve that memory formation as well, right? So it's it's not unheard of in the central nervous system for intermittent stimulus needed being needed for effective induction of of neuroplasticity, and the same is the case here. We believe that these same mechanisms are at play in the awake animal. The difference is that the question that Jay uh, asked a little bit earlier is that in an awake animal, we are not controlling uh, a number of the naturally occurring physiological responses in our awake animal that we are when we're looking at phrenic long-term facilitation. So with our PLTF studies, we are controlling the level of carbon dioxide in the blood. We're controlling for pH, for example. We're controlling for all of these variables so that we know that the response that we're getting is specifically due to the hypoxic stimulus. When we have an awake, freely behaving animal, we do not have those same controls, okay? So as the rat breathes harder in response to hypoxia, 
they are going to blow off more carbon dioxide. And because carbon dioxide is a primary stimulator to breathe, as they blow off more carbon dioxide, then the brain is going to tell the rat to breathe less. Okay. And so you have this negative feedback system that's occurring in your awake rats that is not present when we're doing our neurophysiological experiments. So because of that, the that's one of the primary reasons we think that the amplitude of ventilatory long-term facilitation is not nearly as high as what you get with phrenic long-term facilitation. We're just, we're not able to, to control as many of the variables in an awake animal, but it's still important for us to demonstrate that this form of plasticity can be induced in an awake animal because inducing plasticity ultimately is the goal when we translate our findings to humans. Excellent. Great answer there. This one comes in from Harish, who's asked uh, whether you have any idea which estrogen receptors might be involved in the expression of respiratory neuroplasticity. So it looks like there's quite a few options. Just wondering if you had any insight which ones it might be. Yeah, so the, the Q pathway, the primary pathway, when we're talking about moderate you know, 10 to 12% intermittent hypoxic stimulus is driven primarily by serotonin 2A and 2B receptors. There is a serotonin uh, type 7 receptor as well that's been shown to be more involved in the S pathway, which is, again, that pathway associated with more severe hypoxic stimuli. But normally 2A and 2B are the primary receptors that are involved with what we would consider normal activation of AIH-induced neuroplasticity. Excellent. I think in the interest of time, we'll make this next question the last one. Joseph has asked, how does your intermittent hypoxia stimulus compare to altitude training for athletes? <laughs> yeah, so we get, I get this question a lot and I, I, I get it enough where I, I really should uh, have more knowledge of the, of the specific differences. But the idea here is that there is uh, an idea that if athletes live at low altitudes and train at high altitudes, then that, that exposure to hypoxia will, will have a beneficial effect on their, their athletic performance. I think one of the primary things that you have at play here is a time issue, right? So our intermittent hypoxia stimulus that we use are on the order of, of five minutes duration. So you can think about it going from, from sea level to, you know, a 14,000 foot ski resort over about 30 seconds and then coming back down after, after five minutes. It's a very rapid change in the hypoxic levels. When you live low and train high, that time course is stretched out pretty significantly. And even though technically it's intermittent in that you're going up and down on a maybe a, an eight or a 12 hour time scale, the mechanisms of adaptation are going to be very different. And I think a lot of the effects that you get with altitude training are probably related more to how your body reacts or responds to, to changes in oxygen. So it's going to be more on the, on the sensory side of things versus the motor output side of things. But having said that, again, I, 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 there probably is some crossover between the mechanisms of those two, but uh, they, are, they are very, very different. And the one that we're talking about with acute intermittent hypoxia is very specific. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.